and welcome to Cool Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings community Discord Patreon. This podcast focuses on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Kova. And I'm Kikita Kaori. And this week we continue our conversation with Lux Dykema and Max Brook, moving on to some more general L5R questions and questions about game design. Okay, so... If you had to sum up your philosophy or approach to Legend of the Five Rings, particularly in terms of game design, what would you say if you were to try and sum that up? I try to create fun, inclusive, and quality content. The game line is super awesome, but it's also sensitive. I want to make sure everything that I, I touch ends up being as best as it can be with the time and resources we have available. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess that's the approach. Yeah, that's good, I think. So what new do you want to bring to Legend of the Five Rings that is different than has gone before? I think the thrust that particularly Max and I are trying to do is to include more perspectives, particularly with the teams, the writers that we pull on to do sections in the books, create more varied stories, even within Rokugan, because I think sometimes people think Rokugan is, ah, it's just Rokugan. Like, all the people are the same. Definitely they're not, obviously, because we have all the different clans. But even within the clans, there's so much variation. And bringing that out and showing that, I think, is really important. Yeah. Let's just say Rokugan is, and the world is a really big place. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on. <laughs> and no one adheres to the various stereotypes. Exactly. Everyone's different in their own way. Yeah, that's definitely something I, I like to think about. Uh, do you play much yourself, the role-playing game, and do you have a particular type of campaign you like most? Unfortunately, I am not usually able to get groups together that want to play it, which makes me very sad. So I haven't actually gotten to play in a while. I think the last game I played was maybe January, which is really sad to think about. Okay, so I'm called out here. So if you look at Pathways and Celestial Realms, which I did like the majority of the development work on, I totally love the supernatural and spiritual aspects of Rokugan. So games that I play usually have a lot of that in them. <laughs> a lot of yokai. Mm-hmm. Yep, I love them. And then I, I, after that, I lean towards intrigue and court stuff because the politics in Rokugan are just so fascinating. There's a lot of different kinds of games that can be run in L5R, which is something I really appreciate. So intrigue with supernatural creatures. Perfect. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a sweet spot. That's a sweet spot. Yeah. Uh, we're going to got some question about L5R in general. So moving on from specifically the Celestial Realms book. People have been, or like, I think ever since the very beginning of L5R, people have been discussing, arguing about, questioning honor and glory and the whole kind of is honor internal external that kind of thing so i think the general thing is it's honor is internal glory is external people can't generally see your honor but there are ways and means of estimating someone else's i think stuff like that how about supernatural beings do they can they just see your honor do they does a, do the the kami that you interact with have an, a sense like that? And does that have an effect on how they deal with you? I think it depends on the supernatural creature we're talking about. 
That's true. That is a bit of a wide range, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And some supernatural creatures, even if they could see your honor, many of them probably would not care. Mm. <laughs> but go, go ahead, Vax. That's true. No, you completely nailed my answer there both times. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think you you answered the part of the question of what honor and glory represent. Honor is your internal meter for how well you're living up to your interpretation of the code. Glory is how well others are perceiving that you're living up to the code. And I think of glory yeah. as like an average view because everybody interprets the code in a different way. So glory is like the average view of people are like, oh, yeah, this is you're you're doing a good job or a bad job or a really bad job. <laughs> good or in some cases, I get. I mean, this is. I would love to make a kind of reputation rumor system forever because that person's doing a very scorpion job, and in some cases that's a positive, in some cases that's a negative. And the same with that guy's a total absolute lion, and for some people that's brilliant, and some people that's oh god, oh no. I, I think I've said that about characters before, and you're acting just such an absolute lion. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, stop being such a lion. Stop being such a lion. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a real... I've seen, like, I've watched... I think I've said this before. I've watched rather more samurai dramas than is entirely healthy. But you do get this thing where... It's generally high-ranking, you know, high-level samurai, especially the ones played by Toshiro Mifune, the ones you're supposed to aspire to. They do often seem to have a sense of someone's internal honor. Which I presume would be like a shuji or something. I, High sentiment I skill. Yeah, that kind of thing. And which, but other, other, so it's an internal thing, but sometimes it can be seen. And like you say, there are supernatural beings who will see it and go, oh, yes, you're very honorable. I will deal with you as a very honorable person. And some will say, oh, you're very honorable. I don't care about that one way or the other. It's about as important as your shoe size. Yeah. <laughs> And in exactly. fact, I've got a very vague idea of shoes because I, I'm a Ure and I don't have feet. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's a, that's a, yep. That was a bit of an odd segue. We'll see if that survives the editing process. <laughs> oh, definitely keep that. Please do. What does, yeah, we've talked about this a little bit with Max. So sorry for getting the repeat, but I'll ask it of you, Lex, if that's all right. Uh, what that's does fine. game balance really mean to you in terms of a role-playing game? When I'm thinking about game balance in RPGs, I ask myself like a, a bunch of different questions. Is it fun? Does it work well with the other aspects of the game? Will other players feel underpowered or overpowered by comparison? Because there's different there's different types of success. Like even just talking about Shugenja and, and Bushi, right? Like you can have like really awesome moments as a Shugenja and really awesome moments as a Bushi, and those those moments don't have to be the same moments to still feel like you're both doing something. And the other question I ask is, does it give the GM a regular headache or an exceptional headache? <laughs> That's pretty important. <laughs> okay. I, I, I take it the assumption is regular headache is just expected. It's it's. Oh, yes. It's going to yep. give them an exceptional headache. The, the players are going to try to seduce the thing, and you're going to have a headache whether they succeed or fail. So it's immaterial, you know. Yeah, but if they succeed every time, no matter what it is, you've got a problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm. I think my problem, I think, when it comes to game balancing quotes is what do you throw at the players? Getting that balance so it, it feels like it was a challenge, but it doesn't actually murder them all. And that. Or murder two thirds of them, but this, you know, in order to get a dent on this one guy, 
and make it feel like a challenge for him, it just killed off the rest of the party. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. And and that's a difficulty with a lot of different RPGs in terms of their like combat rating system and just making it feel right because the power levels in terms of like when are your shining moments and if you have a character that their shining moment isn't necessarily combat then the game balance can feel a little wonky even though they still do have shining moments so it's an unending battle honestly and it requires the game master to be really flexible and to think on their feet and that's just that's something that i just take as like part of being a game master just to throw this out there too i feel like l5r game masters actually have an advantage over uh certain other systems in that l5r has very few enemies with breath weapons and speaking (laughs) speaking of things that are going to annihilate one annihilate four party members and not even put a dent in one of them any sort of cone or aoe attacks are top of the list yeah, yeah. L5R <laughs> tends not to have as much of that, and the GM can always remember they have control over the targeting. That's true in any system, but it's easy to forget that, oh, this pre-built wizard NPC's, yeah, I don't know, cone of cold that seems pretty innocuous yeah. actually rolls. The expected value of those dice is actually double the wizard's hit points. I, I, you were talking about the, the difference between... L5R, especially 5th edition and other games, I think what is very clear is that it can't be geared to the sort of antagonistic or even the the, well, the OSR type, neutral arbiter type GM relationship with the players. You certainly, you have to be a bit more trusting because you're explicitly required to give the players the target numbers for everything. Unless you want to feed them a lot of void points. Yeah, yeah. Which that's exactly yeah, that's exactly it. So you're not concealing stuff from the players, you're revealing stuff to the players all the time. Which I think is a very interesting relationship between the GM and the players, which not all games go for. Which I think is very interesting. I mean, how did that come about? A lot of that a lot of the system seems to me to be reliant on GM interpretation of when this advantage would apply or this ability would apply because of the narrative aspect. So that needs an extremely trusting player to GM relationship as well as uh, GM giving info to the player. I think in some ways L5R doesn't actually require more GM player trust than any other system. It just is more honest about the need for GM player trust because at the end of the day, it's not GM player trust breakdowns don't cause problems in D&D or Pathfinder. Because L5R is more honest about the need for that trust in some ways in its mechanics, I think both D&D and Pathfinder do say that, hey, like you're not trying to beat your players. You're trying to have fun together. I know 5th edition D&D does. I haven't read 2nd edition Pathfinder deeply enough to remember. But because the mechanics are very much built around that philosophy that like we're telling a story together, this is a collaborative narrative game, there are definitely less opportunities to just sort of blame the game system. And I think that is something that people definitely hit on and I think is a one of those trade-off choices, right? Like the more cast in stone the game system is the less options it gives the gm the more the gm can just say hey i'm sorry your character died that's just how massive damage works but on the other hand that means that as a gm you have to understand how massive damage works really well not to accidentally blow up your players 
And so it just shifts where the burden is and where the sort of like discussion falls. And I don't think that's intrinsically good or bad, though it does facilitate some play styles. I think given L5R's focus on on intrigue, on nonviolent conflict resolution in a lot of cases, or on considering nonviolent conflict resolution as an option where other games often don't have it or only have it in the sense that they say you can do it, but don't really have mechanics to support it. I think there's a lot of a lot of reason to be open about the fact that this is a like an exercise where we need to trust each other. Do you have any thoughts on that, Lex? No, I think you hit the nail on the head with it, honestly, especially with the sentiment that it just shifts burden. It's not that it's more or less than another system. It's just where, where is it? And, and I do think for some story and game styles, there's an advantage to having that burden on the system. If you want a procedural experience, maybe you want something that's closer to a tactical minis game, right? And you actually are learning that your character's story and the dice fall where they may and your character dies undramatically to an arrow in the first act and that's an interesting twist if that's what you want then that's the sort of system you should that you should go for and it's also it's like food right sometimes you want pizza and sometimes you want sorry it's early dogs <laughs> uh, all you have to do is come up with one other food that exists it is very early in the morning for me <laughs> I, I, I think there's also it's 10 a.m. when it comes to get when, when it comes to games like that. I think there's another thing that if you're a new GM, having a game system that you can lean on and it will do the job a lot of the job for you. When you can just say, "Look, that's just what the rules say," because you haven't developed the muscles to improvise to change things because you don't know what things can be changed. So there's a lot to be said for that. So which makes GMing for L5R can be, I think, harder to do as a beginning GM. I would agree with that. And that's part of the reason we, we make the beginner game. I would say L5R is about comparable to Genesis in terms of GM difficulty. It's Genesis has more stuff to account for, but is slightly more traditional just because it was written earlier in its like player GM relationship where Genesis is other than destiny points or story points. Genesis tends a little bit more towards the benevolent authoritarian GM model. And L5R is a little bit closer to, it's not like full on troop play or any, or GM less or anything, but I think it's a little further on the spectrum of GM player collaboration. And, but I would say they're like, they're pretty comparable. And that that's part of the reason we do the beginner games, because the beginner games really are designed to walk you through everything and give you a model for how to play the game. Do you think that can change if you're running it as a convention game? I can, I saw, I saw this question when we were doing a little bit of prep and I think con games, there's such a different beast, regardless of the system that you're using. I, it, Con games, you can't really rely as much on improv, but also you have to rely on improv because if you're just playing with your friends, you probably have a decent idea of like how crazy they might get or, or, or what they might do. But when you're in a con game, it has to be more structured, but you also have to be like more flexible because con gamers can do just anything and you only have so much time and you want to make sure the experience is, is great. And I think that it both... It, this is a really wishy-washy answer, but you both need a really trusting relationship as like somebody who's running a con game and like the players, but also 
Mm, I don't know. I, mm, con games are tricky. They're so tricky, especially oh, writing adventures for con games is also very tricky. That's extra hard because if you're not going to run the adventure yourself, you don't necessarily know how it's going to be run. And of course, those con game adventures are always like something that have to be put together in addition to whatever normal stuff is going on. So they are often a little bit more sparse than like a published adventure because it's like this thing for this con that maybe we then put together in a later thing. But it's not, oh, it's a full book that's going to go through the full process. It's also crazy because you want to add, you want to have enough content for... Because the group that's playing it, you have no idea who that group is. They might just rush through all of the content. So you want to make sure there's enough content to get through the three and a half, four hours. But you also want to make sure that a lot of that content is optional. And that then requires the GM to be flexible. And that's a lot. I'm a strong believer in fairly hardcore railroading for con games. You want to be polite with your players about it, but saying, hey, this is the adventure we've got. I'm happy to let you explore alternate solutions to problems, but I'm not willing to let you pursue alternate problems. Yeah, please keep your <laughs> limbs inside the cart at all You can, times. you know, and it's, you can, it's like an escape room. You can solve this puzzle however you want. And like, maybe if there's like a real, something that really makes sense for you to go into a room you're not supposed to go into, then we go over there. But I'm eventually probably going to lead you back to the path because I this is what I have prepared. This is the time we have to play it. If we were running this in our own time, like it, you, meandering wouldn't be a problem. But that's how I usually do con games is I tend to be pretty structured. I keep a close eye on the time. I try to keep the pacing. I try, Yeah, I try to keep the players focused on the problems that I set out again, like you want to let them solve those problems however they want to, but you want to keep them from finding or creating too many new problems. I I just (laughs) want to like say one more thing about this. I know we're off on this tangent for a player that's participating in a con game. You need to trust that your game master wants to give you the best experience. So try really hard not to give them an exceptionally hard time. And please don't do it. And and I have to say, most of my experiences running con games have been super positive. Like players generally react to that because a lot of con, I, I think players are sort of used to it because a lot of con games are basically tactical minis games with like some amount of role playing. And that's fine. I That's not a bad thing. I love minis games. I work on minis games full time. Like a lot of con games that I see are like very focused on the, okay, you're going to go into this room and kill these monsters and take this treasure and then go into this room and kill these monsters and take this treasure. And again, that's a lot easier to put together for a con than like an intrigue plot with 85 moving parts. So players tend to be pretty tolerant of being a little bit railroaded in con games, in my experience. Again, as long as you're not cutting off the ways they're allowed to solve the problems. I I also tend to be a believer in a little bit of a good, healthy dash of Monty Hall in con games. Let the players get the big wins when they want, when they really pursue them. Players, if an enemy has like a super awesome sword, but there's like a plot reason they're not supposed to get it, that's, I don't know, some meta plot consideration, but they're going to defeat that enemy and they really want the sword, then just let them have it. It's just a con game. You don't have to deal with the ramifications <laughs> of this for 20 sessions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is a question that's related to con games in that one of the weird things about 
at least the history of L5R, not necessarily just fifth edition, is that there is a certain element of PvP that becomes frequent. You are in your clan, either another person at your table is in another clan, and your clans are fighting each other, and so now it's one player versus another player. Or I don't know if you've heard, you probably have, of these things called winter courts that uh, AEG had, where there was like massive numbers of uh, role-playing, role-play game type players would do a months-long RPG, essentially, competing each other on behalf of their, their clans. What is your feeling about translating or making 5th edition work? just um, PvP in general, in role-playing games and specifically for 5th edition? So I have a couple of things to say about this. First of all, I want to really drive in, drive home how important a session zero is, just regardless of the role-playing game that you're doing. You really need to sit down with your group and talk about what kind of game that you want. Do you want a game that's really heavy in PvP, or do you not want that? And trying to f- strike a balance there. And I think L5R is really interesting because there's actually just two different kinds of PvP, right? There's PvP where you're like literally dueling each other, hopefully not to the death. And then there's the PvP where you are working together, but you're also working against each other. And I think that specifically for L5R, it makes such interesting stories. And so I'm in support of that. I think that if you have role players that can pull it off, that are seasoned, I think that makes awesome stories. But also it's awesome stories if all of your players are fairly like they're working together and they they don't want to oppose each other directly. So I don't know. I, I, I really like that about L5R specifically. Max? I think I've spoken to this topic on this podcast before, and I am tremendously afraid that I will contradict myself if I just spitball on the topic. In general, I think that, I don't know, PvP is tricky. I think people like the idea of PvP more than they actually like PvP. Like, they like the idea that their Lion and Crane characters could kill each other, but actually they're going to work together and then become friends because it's like way more dramatic and like inspiring if they do become friends in spite of that difference rather than if they actually kill each other. So it's one of those interesting things where I think this is part but not the entire reason that there's so much interest in the fan base in like the dueling minigame and so much so many people get super wrapped up in that and and I don't think that's a bad thing by any stretch of the imagination. I'm glad people are engaging with it. I wrote it to be interesting. But I think part of the reason for that is because it really feeds that fiction of the bonds of like friendship that are that exist in this like fraught difficult system where everyone is opposed to each other are that much stronger. And so I think it's a little bit like how people are with their characters dying. Like one thing that I think is super interesting about L5R and its history is that past editions of L5R often made it easy for your character to die asterisk. They made it easy for your character to die, but then they gave you a meta currency that made it impossible for your character to die. And so... It creates this dynamic where it looks like your character can die. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay does the exact same thing. But actually, your character can't die. They literally can't. 
if you have a, an avoid point to spend or what have you and to avoid death. And so the whole like, oh, katanas are always one hit kills home rule isn't really the rule. The rule is katanas cost one void point to avoid, essentially. But the idea of that home rule is inspiring to the imagination and people love the idea that oh my character could have died at any time but instead my character survived this whole deadly campaign and i think that there's a brilliant design lesson in that and then it's that i I don't fully know how to articulate it but it's this brilliant combination of like loss aversion and resource management and imagination but i think it's important to note that at the end of the day people don't really want their character to die most of the time they certainly don't usually want their character to get hit by a random arrow in session one and die undramatically i do know a few people who actually want that i'm not saying there aren't people who want that i know people who like that but i don't know many yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. the biggest problem is that when that happens then your betrothed takes over the lion clan and starts uh taking over crane clan. yes that does have a tendency to happen <laughs> honestly the, the <laughs> dead i found it very interesting that it, especially the earlier editions of alpha bar were really all about it's such a deadly game oh it's the deadliest game and like you say if you've got void points not so much but that was a big <laughs> part of the advertising and the feel of it that's interesting to me. Let's move topics onto Elphavar campaigns. So this is not just one single scenario, but what do you see as the general length of the campaign for you? Have you ever got up to level six or beyond? Do you do long-term games, short-term games? Where do you see Elphavar fitting in that? I personally have never gotten a group together for long enough to play like a legitimate rank six campaign. Like, I've totally, obviously, like, I've tested characters and played in development-wise, like, rank six and stuff. Usually my games only get up to rank three, maybe. How about about you, Max? So I've never run a rank one to rank six campaign. I've run campaigns at all ranks. I think I've had characters get to rank five from rank one. I was giving them accelerated experience to try to test things more, so I think that was, like, 12 or 13 sessions. I've run longer campaigns where the characters actually didn't progress as much. I change my experience a lot based on how much I want the characters to be growing, based on what I want to see out of them, based on the motifs of the story. If it's a campaign, the 1999 school drama campaign I ran, that campaign, so that was like one semester. I think it was like 12 sessions or 13 sessions. I think they only got to like rank three maybe at the bottom of rank three because it wasn't that much time in universe and they were students so like they weren't going to progress that much Uh, so it just depends on the themes you want and the sort of like style of campaign you want yeah exactly i think uh l5r is pretty flexible for that too i think you can have fun at just about any rank and that's really good design so good job max thank you (laughs) i i definitely did assume that most of the game would be played between rank one and four and that games that got to rank five or six would be uncommon. And I think that's true observationally. Similar to other games where you, the, the high level stuff is, it's there, but not very many people get there. So there is a sweet spot, I think. Thank you, Max and Lex, for joining us today. We really enjoyed talking with you. 
I just wanted to give a call out to our sister podcast and patrons. We're the Court Games Network, and that includes the L5R LCG podcast for our card game player friends. And we have two actual play role-playing podcasts, Crimson Gold Agonies and Fortune and Strife. We have joined the D20 Radio Network. Content is funded by the Community Discord Patreon, which uh, supports our editing costs and our website where you can find transcripts and longer-term information and other role-playing game tools. You can find us on the web at courtgamespod.com. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash courtgamespod and on Patreon at patreon.com slash courtgames. That's it for us this week. This is Kikita Kaori. Uh, may the fortunes favor you. And I've been Korvar. Until we meet again, keep your jade handy. Gamers Roll.